This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning. Good to see you all. I feel like Travis has already done my intro for me. We can just kick straight into it. Um, but I did, I did just want to say one more thing. I, I, love, I love preaching, you might have noticed. I really enjoy it. And one of the things that I love about it that you guys don't get to see is what I get to do during the week in the lead-up or the weeks leading up to preaching. Um, and this, this sermon particularly that I'm about to preach to you this morning really challenged me uh, in the writing of it. So, I hope it will challenge you too. Hopefully, it doesn't scare you too much, but it, it's going to get intense. I just thought I'd warn you at the outset. You ready? Okay, good. So yes, today we're beginning Easter. We're going to be looking at Easter from all different angles uh, over the next few weeks, as Travis just outlined in great detail. Put all that in your diary. And we're going to start really at the, the, the beginning, uh, or, or kind of the, the prologue, maybe, to the whole Easter thing. I want you to imagine yourselves back in time, back, all the way back, 2,000 years to the first century AD. Uh, and I also want you to imagine yourself half a world away, thousands of kilometers away, in the hills of ancient Galilee, which you can see pictured on the screen there. I want you to imagine Jesus standing there in his early 30s, this young man, dark skin and dark hair, don't imagine a blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, please. No, you can imagine, imagine whatever you like. Uh, the dust of the road on his clothes, on his sandaled feet. And on this particular day, Jesus is thinking deeply. He's considering something. He knows something that no one else knows yet, and it's on his mind. It occupies his every thought. This is something both wonderful and deeply troubling, awesome and awful. And it's something really personal for him, but it is also something that is for the whole world. I think you can guess what it is, because this is the first sermon in our Easter series. God the Father has made it known to him. He's, he's studied the Old Testament scriptures and seen it written in the pages of the Bible. God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has whispered it into his very soul. And this is how Luke, uh, the author of Luke's Gospel, describes it. This verse, uh, in chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke, if you've read Luke, Luke has a, has a particular style. Everyone has a style whenever they write something. And I find that Luke's style, uh, maybe because he was like scientifically minded, he was a doctor by trade, uh, it, it's very prosaic. He's very straightforward. He just says things as they happened, sticks to the facts, it doesn't tend to get particularly flowery. If you want a flowery gospel, go to John. Uh, Luke, 
This is unusually poetic for Luke. Luke is being really intentional, I think. If you kind of read between the lines of the style of what he's doing here, literarily speaking, he's being really intentional and choosing his words really carefully and trying to kind of paint a sort of impression without really naming things, which is very unusual for the way Luke tends to write in his gospel and in Acts, for that matter. Unfortunately, if you've got a Bible open, if you're reading along, which I do encourage you to do, uh, if you're in something like the NIV or the NLT or any of those, you're probably missing the poetry of this moment. Uh, This is the ESV, which I don't usually use, but I know it's Lewis's favourite. And the ESV is really like literal, they just kind of look at each word in the Hebrew or the Greek and they just grab an English word for it and then they do a bit of tweaking if that then doesn't make sense, but they tend to try and stick really close to the original words. Uh, And so that helps us in this particular case to kind of preserve the poetry of what Luke's doing. So that's why we're looking at it like this. Uh, And he wants, it's almost like a signpost. He wants to kind of hit the reader with this, this statement and kind of draw our attention and capture our hearts for just a moment. But he doesn't want to give away the end of the story just yet. He's being kind of clever. So he uses this phrase, the days are drawing near, that the time is approaching. But he doesn't say what time, he doesn't say what event, what situation, what circumstance. He just says the time, the days are drawing near. When we get there, which takes about 10 chapters in Luke's Gospel, When we get there, we discovered that the time is the Passover festival. Uh, This happened every year. Uh, We're going to celebrate it next Sunday night. Do come along. It'll be tasty and it'll be interesting. But Luke doesn't want us to know just yet that that's where this is heading. He's being intentionally vague. And what we'll discover when we get there is that the Passover is significant. It's the appointed time that all of this story is leading up to. Because the Passover is a celebration of God's rescue of his people. In the particular case, it's the rescue from slavery in Egypt thousands of years before. But it centers on the sacrifice of a lamb. A lamb who dies to save God's people. And Jesus is going to redo that in a cosmic sense. Uh, He is going to be the lamb who dies to set the whole world free. Except Luke doesn't say that. Have you seen? I mean, look, doesn't say any of that. He just says the days drew near for him to be taken up. And again, this is a, a weird very intentional word. Uh, This word, for you Greek nerds, this is the one and only time in the whole New Testament that this word appears in this form. It's sort of a... That whole phrase, to be taken up, is a compound, like it's one word in Greek, and they have to kind of mush together some English words to translate it. And this unusual word is because Luke doesn't want to say where Jesus is being taken up to or how Jesus is being taken up or or even exactly what he's referring to. There's just kind of this general sense of upwardness. 
And Jesus has spoken twice in this chapter already, in verse 21 and verse, 20, and verse 44, uh, about his coming arrest and death and resurrection. So maybe Luke wants us to kind of join those dots ourselves. Maybe he's implying that without quite saying it. Uh, or maybe uh, this, a, a similar set of words uh, are used to talk about Jesus ascending into heaven. Uh, so maybe he's being taken up into heaven when God takes him home, when the work is done. But Luke is being ambiguous. And then we read that because of that, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, again, it's very poetic, isn't it? It's about being determined, resolved, kind of fixing your gaze in one direction. And, and it has this implication of challenge, of difficulty, of, of sort of making yourself look at something or move towards something that is challenging and difficult. Jesus has made up his mind and he's determined to let nothing change his mind. He is going to Jerusalem no matter what. But again, like people went to Jerusalem all the time. Jesus has been there heaps of times before this. So why does it require so much determination and resolution? Is he scared? Luke doesn't say. But again, there's that hint. Jesus has already twice in this chapter talked about how he's going to go and die. He's setting out on a difficult journey because the destination is his own death. And Luke, the only specific thing Luke seems to say is that the location, Jerusalem, see the when that has been set by God is significant, it's the Passover, the dying lamb, and the where is just as significant, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of David, the city of the kings of Israel. The place where David built his palace and sat upon his throne and so did his son and his grandson and so on. And Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king of all kings. And as king, he needs to go to the royal city, Jerusalem, to be proven to be the ultimate king. But also, Jerusalem is the holy city, the city of God, the city where God's temple stands. This is the city where the priests make sacrifices to God, where the people gather to worship. This is the place where, to use a poetic phrase, the place where heaven and earth meet, the holy of holies, where God is most present in the world. And Jesus, as the Son of God, as God made flesh, He needs to go to this city, to Jerusalem, to be proven to be the true presence of God in the world. And you know, you've read the story. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is crowned King of the Jews with a crown of thorns. And Jesus goes and stands in, intercedes for humanity brings us into the presence of a holy God. But he doesn't go to a temple and kill a goat or a lamb. He himself 
is the sacrifice. Not on an altar, but on a cross. So you see, that's all of that is what's on Jesus' mind. At this point in Luke's Gospel here in chapter 9, he's thinking about this Passover in Jerusalem. He's thinking about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die on the cross, how he's going to be the lamb slain for the sins of the world. He knows that's who he is. He knows that's what he is here to do. Have we imagined ourselves enough into this? Have you got it? I see some nods, that's good. And so, in that moment, as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, as he starts the long journey, walking along the road, three men come and speak to him. Let me read for you. This is picking up in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if I'd started this morning cold with that reading, out of context, all on its own, you might not have understood what's going on here. But we're already, we're all primed to understand these strange verses, these strange interactions. Remember, Jesus is fixed on going and dying on a cross. And these three men want to talk about following him. And they think it's an easy thing to follow Jesus. They think it's going to be fun. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be wise teaching. There's going to be cool people to hang out with. Something great is happening, and they can see that something great is going on. They can see that Jesus is someone great. They want to follow him. And he's thinking, you have no idea. It's costly. It's a sacrifice. It's terrifying. You're going to have to set your face towards this. Jesus is thinking, I think Jesus is thinking, yes, yes, please, do follow me. I am the source of life. I am the way to God. But I don't think you realize what following me means. So he warns them. The first one he warns them, he says, you might be left homeless and lonely like me. To the second, he he instructs him. He says, make the kingdom of God your first, your ultimate, your 
only priority over everything else, even over your own life, like me. And to the third, he rebukes him. He says, don't look back and focus on what you're leaving behind. Fix your eyes on what is ahead, like me. On the one hand, he's, he's been really kind of harsh almost. Like he's so demanding of these three men. And on the other hand, he isn't asking them to do anything that he himself isn't acutely aware that he is already doing. If they're going to follow him, they're going to be like him. That phrase, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, uh, it's a phrase from farming, plowing a field. Uh, I'm told that if you're plowing a field and you want the lines to be straight, you need to like fix your eyes on some distant object and kind of move in a straight line towards it. If you're not paying attention, you'll get curvy furrows. Um, I had a mate years and years ago, uh, before I got my driver's license, he had his. And he was, I've got to say, the worst, most terrifying driver to be a passenger for. I won't name names. Um, and I remember he had this, this habit where he'd be driving on the freeway and he'd think, oh, I need to change lanes, I'll check my blind spot. And he'd do one of... I'll need to put the mic down. He'd do one of these. Have you seen people do that? It's terrifying. He didn't know there was no car there. That's why he's checking his blind spot. But when his head turned, his shoulders followed, and his arms followed, and the car followed. It's the same idea. If you look back behind you when you're pushing your plow with your ox... Your ox is really doing the, the heavy work, but you're guiding and directing. And when you turn your head to look behind, the whole plow veers into the oncoming lane. No, I hope not. You've got to fix your eyes on what is ahead and not focus on what's come before. So, yeah, following Jesus is to be like Jesus, to... It's like he's putting down footsteps and then you're coming behind and stepping where he stepped, doing what he did, having the same values, having the same attitudes. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this Jesus is giving it all. He's given up his home in heaven. He's given up his status as the second person of the Trinity. He's given up his authority, his divinity, his blood, his very life's breath, his body and soul on that cross. What does it mean to follow someone like that? If you follow Jesus, it will cost you everything because it cost him everything. At first glance, when you read these words that are still on the screen, it might seem like Jesus is intentionally trying to turn these guys down. He's trying to chase them off. He's trying to send them away. Uh, interesting, Luke doesn't tell us how they reacted, how they responded. Potentially, they said, Jesus, I don't get it. And he, he, they asked some follow-up questions. He gave them some more teaching, some more info. And in the end, they said, all right, 
I can do that. I'm going to do it. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to do it. Or perhaps they realized the weight of expectation on followers of Jesus and walked away. Uh, In Luke chapter 18, if you flick over a few pages, there's a very famous story about a rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, you've got to give away all your possessions, sell, sell all your possessions and give all your possessions and money away to look after the poor. And Luke tells us that time that this man loved his wealth too much to do what Jesus was asking of him. And he walked away. He gave up on Jesus because the demands of following Jesus were too hard. This time, though, it's left to our imaginations. And I think Luke wants to leave it to our imaginations because it's almost like it's an invitation to put yourself in the story. You can be the fourth man or woman who comes to Jesus and has a conversation like this. Jesus is inviting you to follow him too. But would you follow Jesus, this Jesus, on a journey to the cross? I said it wasn't an easy message to prepare. That is a hard question. And I've been asking myself that question all week. What could you give up or give away in following Jesus? And is there something that would make it too hard for you? Like that rich young man in Luke 18. What would be, for you, a bridge too far? What would be your limit? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have one. Surely. Jesus here in Luke 9, and and for the next 10 chapters, is on a journey to the cross, and he isn't looking back. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, have you set your face on him? Let's suppose that Jesus wanted to lead you as you follow him, lead you towards work in which your income would be significantly reduced on what you currently earn, where your standard of living would suffer, where your safety would be more uncertain, your financial security more tenuous, and at the same time, a job that would make bigger demands on your life and on your time. Your leisure time would be significantly reduced. Would you quit your good job for the bad job? Could you do it? What if Jesus were to lead you to pack up your life here on the Central Coast, sell your house, end your lease, and move to a place away from all your social networks, away from all your family and friends, 
a place even where you would be living in a, a state of culture shock with people who spoke a different language and, and thought differently about the world, had different values? Would you live as an outsider and a stranger in a strange place? Could you go? Or would it be too hard? Or how about this? What if Jesus was to ask you to do something which is embarrassing or menial or uncomfortable? What if he were to ask you to speak to someone you don't like or someone you don't trust, someone you feel uncomfortable about talking to because they're so different from you? What if Jesus asked you to love your enemy? What if Jesus asked you to turn the other cheek when someone attacked you or hurt you? To forgive someone who's done you wrong, giving them another chance, giving them, truly giving them a fresh start, not holding what they've done to you against them? What if you're the one who was in the wrong and he's asking you to do the hard work of apology? of reconciliation, when you've been in the wrong and you feel ashamed, to take that shame and front up to it. I don't know if you noticed there, but some of these things he's already told you, you've got to do. These are things he's asked all of us to do who follow him. It's hard, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to me. It's been challenging me all week. Could you do it? What would you give up? What would you do? Where would you find yourself drawing the line in the sand and saying, this far but no further? It's not all bad news. I think that's worth saying at this point because it sounds like bad news, doesn't it? It's not all bad news. It's actually good news. The good news is that Jesus, his death and resurrection, the Easter event, the whole thing, it is life-changing, world-changing, heart-changing, eternity-changing. At Easter, we celebrate and we rejoice because Jesus died to set us free, to give us a new life. Jesus gave it all on the cross, and he's inviting us to receive what he has done. And in receiving it, this is the good news, in receiving it, we receive an enabling to receive the challenge of the calling. The disadvantage that these three men had, and that man in, in chapter 18, the same, is that they didn't have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They didn't have a knowledge, a proper understanding of what Jesus had done in his death and resurrection. And even when it feels impossible, Jesus reassures us, it's okay. It'll be worth it. You can do it.
He knew that. How do you think he managed, knowing where he was going, to make this journey to the cross? He knew death was not the final end of the story. He knew that he would rise again in ultimate victory. He lives even now, our risen King, our Saviour, our Lord. He promises that for us too, the cost is not the whole story. And in Luke 18, straight after that rich young man walked away feeling sad because he couldn't bear to let go of his wealth, Peter turns to Jesus. Yeah, I'll put it on the screen. Peter turns to Jesus, watching the man recede into the distance, turns to Jesus and says, well, we've left all we had to follow you. He's saying, unlike that man who walked away, we managed to do it. We managed to give ourselves away for you. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. That is to say, no matter what it costs you, he's promising it'll be worth it. It'll be okay. Even here in Luke 9, just a few verses earlier than the passage we're looking at, Jesus has said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So this morning, uh, I want to leave you with two, two things to consider, two conclusions. The first one is this. If you can rewind back to the beginning of the sermon... What does it mean to you that Jesus chose the cross? That he, in his incredible love for you, would willingly go and die for you? In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes these very famous words, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time, the Passover, remember, and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might possibly be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So I want to implore you this morning, consider that, think on that, meditate on that today and tomorrow and the next day. Take this into your very soul. Christ was willing to take that journey, 
to set his face to die for you. And it wasn't because you were especially good. It wasn't because you deserved it. It was actually because we are so utterly helpless. And he loves us this much. And the second thing is the challenge. Will you accept this? And not just accept it as an admirer who thinks, gee, wasn't Jesus inspirational? But will you accept it as a follower to walk in his footsteps, no matter what the challenge, no matter what the cost? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus? Will you lose your life for him in order to be saved? Will you lose the world in order to gain your very soul? Will you respond to his ultimate love by giving him everything? It's enormous, isn't it? But we can sum it up in two words. Follow me. So I'd like to pray for me and for all of us as we contemplate all of this this morning. Lord Jesus, we... We look upon your sacrifice for us, your love for us, your willingness, your desire even to give everything for us. Lord, you are so, so good. And your love is so, so profound, more than we can grasp, more than we can really imagine that you would set your face to go to that cross, to die in our place, to bring us rescue, to bring us life. And Lord, this morning, with fear and trembling, we offer ourselves as your followers. Lord, we don't know what it's going to cost, so it's hard. Give us the faith that we need. Give us the courage that we need to be truly your followers, to count the cost, to take up the cross, to follow in your footsteps. Lord, give us the faith that we need to know that you go with us and before us and behind us. The hope to know that the story doesn't end with us losing everything, but that the story ends with your victory and with new life. Help us, Lord, to answer the call and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.